Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you have a pew Bible or the same numbering as the pew Bibles, it's on page 849. Uh, If you would stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 13, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you before trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given you that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his children, and children rise against their parents, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in tumultuous times, but times not unlike the past 2,000 years of church history. When your spirit fell upon those in Pentecost till today, your people have been hated and persecuted to the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, and you have called us to faithfulness, to preach your word in times of peace, in times of great persecution, to not be enamored with signs that distract us, but focused on the mission of going to the nations and making disciples, to make Christ known that his name will be hallowed. Father, we need you. We need you in times like this as our nation um, is in the midst of an election. And Father, we are so distracted and divided by politics and social issues, by pride, that manifests itself in forms on social media that bring shame to the name of Christ. Father, convict us that we may repent of lifting up our kingdoms and our ideologies rather than your name in the way that you have called us. Some trust in horses and some trust in kings, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
Father, we come to you in a time when we realize the brevity of life, where we have uh, these seasons been stung by the bitterness of death, with Linda's passing this week, with the sickness and the scourges of cancer and disease and sickness. Father, we recognize and we realize our humanity and our limitations and our need. And we come to you and thank you that you're a God that is immutable. You do not change. You stand outside the realms of time. And you hold kingdoms and presidents and congresses in the palms of your hand. You have parliaments and kings and tribal lords in the palms of your hands. You have all things in your hands, including our hearts. And the hearts of our loved ones, our spouses, our children, those that we love but we cannot protect from a world that is stained by sin. Father, we come to you and we lift them up, knowing that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Father, may we see Jesus today. And may we go forth from here changed, that we think differently, that we act differently, that our emotions and our desires are changed, that we would know Christ and make him known in Jacksonville, in the United States, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, that you may be glorified above all else, and we may be satisfied in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Corey Ten Boom, uh, she is the lady in the white dress standing had no idea how her brilliantly ordinary life as a middle-aged, unmarried woman living with her sister, Betsy, who is sitting down to her right, and her father, the 80-year-old watchmaker, would radically change in an instant. But God was doing something bigger than their little clock shop in Holland. On May 10th of 1940, the German army invaded the Netherlands. Four days later, Holland fell. She and her family watched in horror as German warplanes bombed their city and German soldiers filled their streets. Their lives changed in an instant. Almost overnight, she went from running her father's clock shop to running a vast network of underground uh, protecting Jews from the occupying Germans. Her family was ultimately arrested, and her hiding place was exposed. Her father in his 80s, her brother, his wife, her sister, and herself were arrested and brought to Schwenigen, a Dutch prison where she was left in solitary confinement for weeks with a raging fever. Finally, the warden of the prison, Lieutenant Rames, came and interrogated her about the underground. And while she was being interrogated, she distracted him by telling them of her work against, with mentally challenged citizens of Holland. 
He scoffed at her and said, what a waste. One normal person, he said, is better than all the half-wits that she wasted her time teaching. And at that moment, Corrie ten Boom, who was being interrogated for her possible freedom, did the unthinkable. She looked at the most powerful man in the prison, the man who controlled whether she stayed and rotted and be sent ultimately to a concentration camp or sent home. She says this, may I tell you the truth? And he said, that's the point of this interrogation. The truth is that God's viewpoint is sometimes different than ours. So different that he gave us a book to be able to teach us about his ways. And she looked at him with his cold face and says, who knows? Maybe a halfwit is more valuable than a watchmaker or even a lieutenant. At that, she abruptly was sent back to her cell and she realized she had said too much. Her chance of freedom was gone in an instant. Ocean Park, in an instant, our world can change. And like the Ten Boom family during the German invasion, everything they thought they can depend on, everything that their quaint, quiet lives living above a clock shop in the Netherlands could be snatched away. Jesus warns his disciples about a similar situation here in Mark chapter 13, the destruction of the temple. But he doesn't simply foretell this cataclysmic event to his disciples. He teaches his disciples how they are to weather this storm that is coming. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know today as we learn about this event in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is also not get just simply telling them how they will deal with the destruction of their world, but how we as a paradigm for the last 2,000 years of a church are to deal with the cataclysmic events when our world comes crumbling. As the psalm says, when the mountains roll into the heart of the sea, yet we will trust in the Lord. And so this I want you to know. My big idea today, all who endure great suffering for Christ will enjoy a far greater salvation in Christ. All who endure great suffering from Christ will enjoy a far greater salvation in Christ. But how do we do that? How do we endure great suffering? Because this text is not just a prediction of what's going to happen, what in reality has happened in the first century, and now is the paradigm of how we learn how to deal with events of our days. But he says, don't be led astray by false teachers. And second, don't lose heart in the face of persecution. Don't be led astray by false teachers. And don't lose heart in the face of persecution. We see in chapter 13, the first four verses, Jesus tells of this great coming judgment that is about to come, that is about to befall the people of God. There was no temple in the world like Israel's temple. It was unmatched in the ancient world. And as we recreate it and see it today, it is unfathomable. 
You, this is called Herod's temple, the second temple. You had the main, the first temple that we see in the Old Testament was Solomon's temple. Then you have Ezra's temple. And then this, set, this main temple is Herod's temple. And Herod had a flair for grandeur and for permanence. And his uh, remains and of his building projects in Israel are still there today. And the temple was his greatest work. Uh, this has been recreated. You can see here, you can see here, or maybe here. Yep, it's coming, it's coming. Chris, if you bring that first one up for me, brother, I appreciate that. There you go, there it is right there. You can see that the temple was massive, and I chose this picture, and I wish we could get a little closer because of the little tiny people that are coming in and out. You have, um, this is the main part of the temple uh, facing the front, the plate where the, the altar was, was up front. Uh, if you, contemporary Israel, you have right here is where the western wall is, where the wailing wall is. And this was a massive, massive structure. Uh, contemporary Israel, now where the temple once was, you have the Dome of the Rock, an uh, Islamic um, mosque. But the, Esplane, um, the, the area here was 325 meters wide and 500 meters long, the circumference of nearly a mile. It had 35 acres that would cover nearly 12 football fields. This building was massive. Just to give you a scope of the stones that the disciples mentioned, you see the Wailing Wall and you can see the first layers, I think the first seven layers are original to Herod's temple and others in subsequent generations have been laid, uh, laid upon that. But you can see the average man, five or six feet tall, uh, these massive stones. There are areas uh, in the temple wall where the stones are 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and nearly a million pounds. And you notice the pride of the disciples, their nationalistic pride that they had for the temple. In verse 1, it says, As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples swelled with pride as they walk in the shadows with Jesus of this massive temple. Um, it would be like a Parisian as they look at the beauty of the Eiffel Tower. Or the Chinese as they see the vastness of the Great Wall. Or like U.S. citizens look to Lady, Lady Liberty in New York Harbor. It was a symbol of their national pride. But Jesus, in verse 2, tempers their enthusiasm, and he says to them, do you see these great buildings towering above them? They were just tiny uh, compared to the grandeur of these buildings. You see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will be not be thrown down. We're looking over Mark's shoulder as Jesus is leaving the temple for the final time. He will not return. And he has searched it, and he has found it unfaithful and unfruitful. 
He has called it not a temple of the one true God. He has called it a den of robbers. He has called it a barren, cursed fig tree. And these words of judgment that he calls down on the great pride of Israel would be the very words, would be the nails in his final execution that the Jewish leaders finally decided enough is enough. He's got to go. Jesus warns his disciples because he knows what's coming. He knows he is leaving, and he knows that his, uh, his people will be left behind. And he says, don't allow the present splendor to disguise the future coming devastation, because these marvelous mammoth stones will be thrown down. These buildings that are uh, uh, incredible now will lie in ruins. This spectacular temple will fall spectacularly. Why? Because the temple belonged to an old order whose builders rejected the cornerstone, the stone that would become central to God's new, eternal, everlasting temple, Jesus Christ. And the Lord God does not allow rival temples to stand. Notice he says in verse 3 and 4, that Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and uh, scholars say that the Mount of Olives now is, is actually has a cemetery, but at the time it was, had, uh, it was a retreat into nature, and there were trees and a place where they can be very quiet. And you, as you look down on the, on the, uh, from the Mount of Olives, you could see into the sanctuary, into the temple area. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, Peter and James and John asked him privately, when... Will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Such words, such uh, that Jesus gives waylay the disciples. It would be like telling New Yorkers on September 10th of 2001 that the Twin Towers, uh, uh, nearly a hundred stories into the sky, would lie in rubble. They would be overwhelmed with shock and disbelief and say, it will never happen. And as Mark, and, or excuse me, as Peter and James and John and Andrew sit overlooking this vast temple, the words of Jesus echo through their head. They were overwhelmed with shock and disbelief. And they asked Jesus. They don't ask him why, oddly enough. They asked him, when will this happen? And what are the signs that this is coming? And Jesus doesn't give them the answers of when, nor does he give them the signs of the temple's destruction. He gives them what they need. He gives them the how. How will you endure the judgment that will come? He teaches them how to remain on the path when false teachers seek to lead them astray. He teaches them how to be courageous when their heart tells them to fear. He tells them how to be bold again when the enemies of the kingdom of God desire their silence. He tells them how to be faithful to Christ when those that they trust the most betray them. He doesn't give them the details about the end. He tells them how they need to be faithful until the end. Because all who endure the suffering for Christ will enjoy a far greater salvation in Christ. 
So Jesus gives them the first way of how to endure. One, don't be led astray by false teachers. Jesus warned them that false teachers would arrive and they would promise and give them great false hope and he would, um, they would get stir deep false fears. Notice these false hopes that these false teachers would try to lure them away from Christ in 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In my lifetime, the weeks following 9-11, the churches of the United States were packed. Why? Because people were looking for answers. The foundations of their world has been shaken, and they didn't know where to go. So they went to church. Brothers and sisters, when the foundation of our worlds are shaken, we look for something that we can hold on to. Something that's not shaking in the foundations and falling. It was true today, it was true in 2001, and it was true in the first century. And Jesus looks at his disciples, his sheep, his flock, and he knows what's coming. And he says to them, keep watch. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, watch out for doomsday deceivers. Jesus warns them there will be those who will capitalize on the devastation by claiming to come in the name of Jesus and with his authority. But their aim would not be to care for the flock and protect the flock and feed the flock. Instead, their gain would be to exploit the flock for their own benefit. So Jesus, the good shepherd who is going to prepare a place for them and will not leave them as orphans and will be returning to them and bring them to where he is, warns his flock, don't be led astray by this ceaseless parade of imposters and pretenders and glory hounds that still haunt the church today because they're coming. You watch out. Because if you don't, if you grow complacent and grow weary, they will lead you away from Jesus, our only hope in life and death. Ocean Park, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The temple was, uh, fell in 70, and turmoil and cataclysmic events have um, scarred our worlds, our nation, and our lives. And people try to capitalize on turmoil in people's life and our nation to be able to advance themselves. I remember watching in March when COVID was starting to hit, and you have a, a well-known evangelist who was selling for $15 a spray oil thing that would kill COVID. The wolves are still among the flock today in using the name of Jesus to hurt the flock. They claim a secret knowledge. They promise a special blessing. They use the name of Jesus to sell a product, to build a ministry, to gain notoriety and a name brand and to get followers. And doing so, they deceive desperate people searching for answers to the problems and the cataclysmic events of their world. And they don't care about Jesus. They just care about leading them away from the source of life, which is Jesus. 
we must ask ourselves, when people come and make claims like this, does this represent the truth of God and the purposes of God? Or is it merely using God in the articles of faith for arterial purposes? Are they trying to get rich off our ignorance? Because we haven't invested and fed our soul with the truth of God's word. Are they trying to protect the flock and draw us closer to Jesus? Jesus warns his disciples to watch out for false teachers who are peddling the word of God for profit. Not only says, watch out for false teachers who will lead you astray with false hopes, but also with false fears. Notice in verse 7 and 8, And when you hear of rumors of wars, and do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet. When the disciples stood in greater Jerusalem, and they watched as the flames of the temple receded into the heavens, and they knew the temple was falling, and their world was falling apart, Jesus says, this is not the end. Though it feels like the end. Though I probably, many of you, remember where you were when you turned on the news channels and you heard the first report of 9-11 that the first plane had hit the tower. Some of you with ties to New York, it was especially uh, painful. I know Denise's two best friends were in New York that day. They were supposed to be at the towers, but they weren't. But it makes you question everything and fears right up. But Jesus says the greatest danger to the disciples was the delusions of the crowd. False fears take our eyes off of Jesus. What does the author of Hebrews say? Let us fix our eyes where? On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And false teachers are going to come and they're going to try to pull our, our, our eyes off of Jesus and the mission that we have. We just finished the World Series. And though the World Series didn't have as many people in the crowd, you can picture Game 7 of the World Series. And the pitcher is on the mound all by himself. His focus is not on the crowds, on the opposite dugout, on the cheering, on the... Uh, the uh, uh, cries of the opposing fan. His focus is on the catcher. His goal is to throw strikes and get the batter out. What false fears do, when false teachers come and they lead us astray, they take our eyes off of the catcher, Jesus. And they fill our heart with fear and they distract us so we don't fulfill the mission that we're called to do. Disciples of Christ must focus on the mission of Jesus, not the fears that surround them. Wars will always rage between people and nations. Natural disasters will always shake our world. Famines will starve the people. These, Jesus says, are just birth pains. They're not the end. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, every time a shot is fired in the Middle East, or a earthquake or hurricane comes, this is the end. Jesus says, this is not the end. These are things that the false teachers and the enemy gets us to take our eyes off of that. Wars and earthquakes and famines will always exist, and they're always held in the hands of a good and sovereign God. 
We must not squander our minds, our strength, and our time with empty end-time speculations, but devote ourselves to Christ's mission and making disciples. We must keep our eyes on the catcher's mitts by doing the work of the kingdom and making disciples. Calamities we face when the foundations of our world come crashing down, we must anchor ourselves on faithfulness and watchfulness. End times fervor. I had a, I had a pro intro that I talked about how I really don't like. This whole chapter is all of it discord. I don't like end times sermons because people don't listen. I remember as a kid, I was told that the mark of the beast is uh, the barcode on Coke cans, debit cards, and those little microchips inside your dog. Those are going to be the mark of the beast. Uh, every time a shot is fired in the Middle East, every time that there's a war, there's all the kinds of things. I've seen the movies like A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder. I have not watched A Left Behind. Thank you. Uh, but you have all of these things, and I've been, I went to, a, growing up in a church, I went to my undergraduate, and they had charts and all of this stuff. I think the Jehovah's Witness have predicted seven times the end of the world, and they're 0 for 7. Let's make it an 8. They have, denominations have come, Harold Campy a few years ago. People have tried to predict and they've been distracted. There are people that only pay attention to me and only awake when I preach about the end times when they come up. I've had people leave the church because they tell me that I don't preach enough prophecy like John Hagee. Brothers and sisters, because end time speculation takes our eyes off the prize, off the goal of the great commission of preaching the gospel to the nations. Christ is coming, our cardinal doctrine, Two, he will defeat sin and death. Three, he will bring his people to himself. And four, we will always be with the Lord. And whether you're amil, pre-mill, post-mill, or as Steve Fuday says, pan-mill, in the end, Jesus will, everything will pan out the way it should be. And I think I, I'm that too. But brothers and sisters, end-time speculation can cause us to miss Jesus. Because when I read through the book of Revelation, I don't understand what's going on. But you know what I do understand? Jesus is coming. We must be ready. And he will make all things right. And we must go and bring the good news of great joy to all the nations. Do not divert our gaze to but false teachers that give us false hopes and false fears. Uh, we need to remember all who endure great suffering for Christ will endure or, uh, uh, enjoy a far greater salvation. So don't be led astray by false teachers with false hopes and false fears. And don't lose heart in the face of persecution. Disciples up to this point had really not faced a lot of persecution. The scribes and the Pharisees opposed Jesus, and little known to the disciples, they were plotting his death, but the disciples didn't know it. They still thought they were going to have an earthly kingdom, and that they would have a cabinet office in that kingdom. They would have honor and power and influence, and they had no idea the coming storm that was building. But Jesus knew... And he would warn them to not 
lose heart when those persecutions would come, and come they would. And he warns them not to lose heart when you're persecuted by evildoers. Notice verses 9 through 11. Another imperative. Lots of imperatives. Lots of commands in here. Four in this section. And I think there are upwards of like 19 or 25 or something like that in the rest of the chapter. Be on your guard. For they, the enemies of the kingdom of God, will deliver you over to councils. And they will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. The gospel is preached to the nations at Pentecost. And the gospel now, following this paradigm that Jesus has given us, is being preached to all the nations. Scott and Linnell uh, Bailey are bringing the gospel to the nations. And Jesus wants his disciples ready. Not only in the face of floggings and beatings to be able to endure the persecution, but in the floggings and the persecutions to be able to share the name of Jesus to the very ones that are beating you and flogging you and imprisoning you and killing your family members to be able to preach Jesus to them. Jesus isn't promising us. Don't believe to Guy Smiley on the television and all these people. Jesus is not promising us that we will tip through, toe through the tulips and that we will be named, uh, blessed and highly favored. But this is what he promises us. In the persecution, he will be with us. When nobody else is. When fears are great and, or tears are great and comforts few, we trust in you because he walks through the valley with us. In the midst of agony and heartbreak and persecution, Jesus will protect his people. He is promising that these are the means, the imprisonments and the floggings and the beatings are the means by which he brings the gospel to the nations. Think about it. We've lived in this little cocoon for 250 years in our nation where we have religious liberty. And we don't know what it's like. And this is why uh, the, uh, the um, World Watch List, our brothers and sisters don't know what it's like. We freak out when they, we have to wear masks and social distance and not go to church. They are going to take their life in their hands if they even ask somebody, do you know Jesus? They will be killed. They will lose their jobs. Their family will kill them. The persecution of the disciples will be the means by which the gospel is preached. These verses, look at them. This is the blueprint for the book of Acts. Notice in Acts chapter uh, 5, for those of you who are going through the reading who haven't tailed off, we just finished the book of Acts a few weeks ago. But in the book of Acts, coming up, there we go, in the book of Acts, it says, Acts chapter 5, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. This is the religious leaders. And they charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. And the disciples left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they didn't just rejoice. They were just beat for preaching the gospel. They rejoiced. And what did they do? And every day in the temple, into the realm and the turf of the religious leaders, 
they, and they went from house to house teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It was the beatings and the floggings and the persecution that were the motivation. And they, on account of the religious and civil authorities that, that reaped the disciples' suffering and persecution, and they rejoiced. Ocean Park, God will put his people into difficult and painful and unjust situations, not because he has abandoned us, not because he's punishing us, not because we don't have enough faith. He puts us in that situation because we trust him and he is faithful and to bring the gospel into places that only can be reached through persecution. Like the fleas in Ravensbrook concentration camp. You probably can figure out I'm reading the hiding place right now, Corey Ten Boom's autobiography, which is the book of the month. I'll have a copy. So you must, must, must read it. Corey and her sister Betsy Ten Boom prayed on the dark nights as their bodies wasted away from mal malnourished and work. Yet it was Betsy who's really the real hero of the story. Thanked God for the fleas in her concentration camp. And you say, why in the world would you thank God for the fleas? Because the supervisors of the camp wouldn't step foot in that flea-infested in, in, building. And what they did is they had Bible studies, and they prayed, and they brought the gospel to the nations. Women who were dying heard the name of Jesus and put their trust in him because the, the fleas were a shield by which these women in persecution and pain and sorrow were able to preach the gospel to women who had no hope. And Betsy rejoiced that God was using the fleas to proclaim the gospel. When you look at the history of the, of the church, you have men like Billy Graham who went freely throughout the world, uh, free governments, socialist governments, communist governments, and he preached the gospel to millions upon millions upon millions. But there were also men like Polycarp who boldly proclaimed Jesus as he was standing on, the on, on a uh, martyr's pyre as the Romans were burning him because he would not offer uh, sacrifices to Caesar as Lord. And he said these words that reverberated through the first century and brought the name of Jesus to people who had never heard. For 86 years, I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior now? And as the flames consumed his body, the aroma of the knowledge of the gospel was emanated through the first century. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the persecutions we face both, face, both large and small, are the sovereign means by which the Lord is using to bring the gospel into the darkest and most unreachable places. Yet the promise of God is that we do not go alone. The Holy Spirit goes with us, and when we don't know what to say, speaks through us. And therefore, Jesus warns us. 
He says we must be on guard against self-pity and hopelessness about anger and despair. For God is working in us and through us, even in our darkest days, to make the gospel known. We must not lose heart in the face of persecution. Not only lose heart by persecution, but lose heart by betrayal. Persecution will come from godless governments and wicked authorities, but will also come from those we trust the most. And we must be ready. Notice verses 12 and 13. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up in parents and have them put to death. And you who have been hated by, my, by all for my name's sake. We need, as the side says, we need to be readers. We need to be readers of Christian biographies because we are so jaded by our 21st century American understanding of the gospel. We need to read about people that are not in the same culture and time, that are not shackled by the same blind spots as we read the stories of the faithful. There is a library full of biographies that we must read and to see that Jesus is valuable far more valuable than the comforts and the privileges we have as 21st century Americans. But to the family in verse 12 and 13, the family in Jewish life was the foundation and the fabric of society. It's so formed and defined really who you are. Yet Jesus says the most intimate relationships are not um, exempt from the stain and the sting of betrayal and persecution. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you must be ready. Loyalty to Jesus will be so loathful and odious to the world that even those we love the most and trust the most will betray us because of Jesus. Not even a family bond can take precedence over our call to follow Jesus. Ocean Park, Jesus is warning that his disciples of the coming calamity will be realized by persecution and betrayal. And we must be ready and not lose heart. Jesus' words in AD 70 became a sober reality. Josephus described the destruction. He says, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. The Jews were devastated. The symbol of their nation lie in ruin just as Jesus has foretold. But Jesus didn't simply say, heads up, this is what's going to happen. He prepared his people. He gave them a paradigm of which to be faithful. And he does not leave us unprepared. We must watch and pray lest we be led astray by persecution or false teachers while we lose heart by persecution. Why? We have the promise of God. The final phrase in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's not just simply the end of time, the end of their days. Faithful to Jesus to finish well in the face of persecution. The weight of glory 
Jesus explains, and then Paul echoes through in Romans, the weight of glory is not worth comparing to the persecution and the hardships and the suffering and the loneliness and the betrayal of this present life. The glories of the new heaven and the new earth are where God dwells with his people. We'll be free from the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak and sin that ravish our world. The new heavens and new earth where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwell with the faithful who have put their trust in the promises of God in Christ, where joy abounds, where perfect love overflows, where God's glory shines. It is not worth comparing to this brief momentary affliction. Ocean Park, ask yourself, Am I living for the comforts of this world or am I boldly proclaiming the goodness of the gospel where God leaves me, even in the face of persecution and hardship? Chris Williams, sent, you can blame Chris if you don't like what I'm about to say. Chris Williams sent me an article this week written by John Piper. And, you know, it was an outstanding article, but there was a section in the middle that says pastors. He wrote to pastors. And it was a section that, quite frankly, keeps me up at night. Because, as Paul tells Timothy, watch your preaching because you ensure salvation to you and your hearers. And Piper says these words. Imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or from the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines and prison and exile and martyr. Then ask yourself this, pastor. Has your preaching, has your preaching developing real radical Christians, Christians who can sing on the scaffolding before their death, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Christians, Piper writes, who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who face hate and reviling and exclusion for the name of Christ, yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, their reward is great in heaven. Ocean Park, I want you to hear me today. Keep your eyes on Jesus. When the foundations of, the, of your world shake, and they will, when everything you thought you can trust comes tumbling down, keep your eyes on Jesus. When false prophets come to you with sweet words of blue skies and calm waters, remember the words of Jesus. Those who endure to the end will be saved. When pain of persecution and the bitterness of betrayal ache, remember the words of Jesus. Those who persevere or endure to the end will be saved. Jesus is working in us and through us to announce the arrival of his kingdom from shore to shore. He is leading each and every one of us to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And we will do that, some of us, before kings and councils, before synagogues and governors, before prisoners and palaces. The means by which we will proclaim the good news of great joy will be tears 
tears and laughter, persecution and suffering, mass gatherings and secret meetings, or flea-ridden concentration camps or a martyr's pyre. On the highways and the byways and the hedges, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Seeking the Spirit's comfort, proclaiming the Father's salvation, because we know the promises of Christ is all who endure suffering for Christ will enjoy a far greater salvation in Christ. Therefore, we are not led astray by false teachers and we do not lose heart in the face of persecution. The morning after her in Corey Ten Boone's interrogation, Lieutenant Rhymes was the one who unlocked her cell. And he led Corey Ten Boone to her hearing for her uh, release. But rather than going into a dark, dank office with soldiers around, he led her into a courtyard under a large shade tree. She didn't know what was happening. She didn't know what was going on, and his words were shocking. He said to her, I could not sleep last night. I was thinking of the book that you have mentioned where you have given me such different ideas. What else does that book say? She closed her eyes, she writes, and she began to say slowly, it says that a light has come into the world so that we need no longer walk in the darkness. And then she looked at Lieutenant Rhymes, the most powerful man in the prison, and she says, is there darkness in your life, Lieutenant? And it says, Corey sat in long silence until he finally answered, there is great darkness. I cannot bear the work I must do here. And with these unexpected words, Corey Ten Boone formed the most unlikely friendship. For the next four days, she was boldly and lovingly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to a powerful man who was powerless under the weight of deep darkness and unthinkable evil. The anguish in his heart was melted by the frail prisoner who did not waste her imprisonment, but boldly declared the gospel even in Schwenhagen when it cost her her freedom. She kept her eyes on Christ, on his mission, and she did not lose heart, but clung to the promises of Christ. It is all who suffer for Christ will enjoy a far greater salvation in Christ. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And we thank you in the midst of turbulent times, in confusing times, that we have a sure foundation. We are citizens not of this kingdom, but we are citizens of the world, excuse me, of heaven where Christ has redeemed us, and no one can pluck us from our Father's hand. Father, we thank you. We praise you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.